Welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, where we will explore traditional Quaker beliefs and the variety of Quaker beliefs found today. Welcome back to Quaker Faith and Podcast with Mackenzie and Micah. Um, we had a listener request to talk about the book of Revelation, and the next chapter in the book was about the Lamb's War, so we figured it would be a good idea to put the book of Revelation stuff before the Lamb's War stuff, like, as an intro to that. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the person who was asking wanted to know about, you know, Quakers in the book of Revelation, but we're figuring, since there's a whole lot of stuff that, uh, other denominations talk about with, like, the end times and the coming apocalypse and all that, that maybe we could contrast with that. It's, uh, it's funny that you uh, bring up the end times uh, and the coming apocalypse, because I think that's the way a lot of people, both Christians and non-Christians, think about the book of Revelation. When they think of the book of Revelation, they think of these are some crazy stories about stuff that's about to happen at some point in the future, and uh, this, is, this, is, this is stoked uh, by... Uh, a lot of evangelical teaching in particular for a very long time uh, that views the book of Revelation as a set of prophecies about things that are going to happen in the future and sort of looking looking at Revelation as, well, this is some sort of code, and if we can decipher the code, we can figure out the chain of events that's going to happen in history at some point um, that's going to lead to the to the end of the world. Um, and this, this, this sort of perspective on Revelation as being a secret code that Christians can, can decode and, uh, and have sort of a historical timeline of the future of, of what's going to happen uh, was really, I mean, it's always, it's been present in evangelicalism for a very long time, but it was really popularized by the Left Behind series, uh, which uh, is just uh, almost, almost a cartoon of, of, of these of, of these tendencies in evangelicalism to turn the book of Revelation into sort of a, a recipe for the future in which uh, Christians get to get to go to war with the forces of evil and win um, but only after all the existing Christians get raptured into heaven uh, and don't have to deal with any difficulties which it just occurred to me while you were talking that there's like a bit in I don't remember which gospel where um, Jesus is saying, you know, no one knows the day or the hour, but keep watch and like mm-hmm. look for the signs. And so I wonder if the reason that they're trying to crack the code of John's revelation is because they're trying to figure out what those signs are. Right. No, absolutely. And I mean, to some extent, you, I mean, you, you can see where many evangelical Christians come to the conclusions they come to, or at least some of them, based on, you know, a fairly, a fairly straightforward reading of scripture. Um, Unfortunately, and, and frankly, there there are some there are some uh, sort of uh, literalist interpretations of Revelation that, while I don't personally ascribe to them, I find them compelling. I'm particularly thinking of a little a little fringe group called the Jesus Christians that doesn't really exist anymore, but existed during the 2000s, and they had a very a very literalistic uh, fundamentalist style reading of Revelation, but I kind of liked it. Because it emphasized the things that I liked, uh, right? So, like, so, like, it, 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 so fundamentalism, fundamentalism can be fun sometimes if you agree with the fundamentals that are being espoused. Uh, but I think that what what McKinsey and I want to talk about today is uh, how we can read Revelation responsibly um, and how we can read it uh, the way the writers of Revelation intended us to read it, the way they intended the original, the the early church to read it that was around when it was being written. Uh, because 
at the end of the day, despite a lot of confusion around the book of Revelation, it was not written as something to be like a secret code uh, deciphered 2,000 years later. Um, With Illuminati and stuff. Exactly. Um, it, it, was, it, was not, it was not intended to be something that was completely mysterious and confusing. It was a lot more uh, like, frankly, the book of Revelation is much more akin to internet memes than it is <laughs> to some secret code. Because all because all the imagery in, in the book of Revelation, you get some fantastic imagery in there. You get you know beasts rising out of the land and out of the sea. You get a dragon that's chasing after a mother with her child. You see the earth pouring out water to stop the dragon and save the mother and the child and protect them. You see you know uh, angels in heaven, all sorts of crazy scenes. But these weren't these weren't um, these weren't mysterious symbols that no one understood and had to decipher somehow. These were pop culture references. Also, this is where the only reference to pearly gates in the entire Bible comes from, and those are in the New Jerusalem, not in heaven. Right. Just so we're all clear. Yeah, and um, you know, I think obviously we, we can't we can't effectively give a good synopsis of the book of Revelation in, you know, the, the twenty to thirty minutes we have on this podcast. But so if you're if, if you want deeper perspective into what we're talking about, first of all, I recommend that you you read the book of Revelation. Uh, sort of keeping in mind some of the things we're talking about here today, um, but also there's some really good there's some really good books on Revelation. Um, one that I can personally recommend because I have read it uh, is uh, Unveiling Empire, and I'm actually blanking on the author's name right now. But there, but if you look if you if you search on the internet, for I'll it, stick it in the show notes. Yeah, stick in the show notes. There's another one that I haven't read, but I'm sh- I'm I'm confident it's probably pretty good, which is uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly. Uh, by 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 uh, uh, author's last name is Gorman. Um, so there's some good books out there on Revelation uh, that are, that are written from from the perspective uh, uh, that we're talking about today, where un- understanding Revelation in its historical context um, and and uh, allowing that context to make it even more powerful than it is when you read it out of context. It occurs to me that something else we should mention is um, because I said the word apocalypse earlier that the word apocalypse. Is like that is the Greek word that means revelation, and revelation means unveiling. Well, yes, because yeah. it's revealing something. I guess I guess we hear the word revelation so often in connection with the book of Revelation that we forget that revelation actually means something. It means oh, revealing. see, I think I'm a magician. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I guess I'm. I guess I'm just. You know, for me, sometimes like the t- the titles of things become like proper nouns, mm-hmm. and I forget that they mean something. And revelation literally means to pull a to pull aside a curtain that was obscuring something, right? It's to mm-hmm. reveal. So you're opening the Christmas present. What's inside? I don't know. We're gonna find out. <laughs> and the 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 idea of apocalypse, um, apocalypse is a genre. You know, the Book of Revelation is the only apo- Well, no, that's not true. The Book of Revelation is one of several apocalyptic documents in the Bible. Um, but apocalyptic documents, apocalyptic genre, was a common genre in the ancient world. This was something like there's a form to it, and people and people recognize this form. And the apocalypse is about basically saying, "Oh, so you think things are a certain way, right? Like the people who are powerful say, here's how the world is, but in fact, God has a different plan going on. And behind the scenes, where you didn't think to look, something very different is happening. So the kingdoms of this world, you know, the presidents." And the kings and the principalities and powers, they have their plans and they have their systems and they want you to believe in them and follow them. But in fact, there's something much more powerful and dynamic and beautiful happening behind the scenes. 
and it's going to overthrow these false powers that have caught your attention. So back to understanding uh, Revelation in its historical context. Uh, the book of Revelation was written in the early years of the church in the first century, and it was written in the context of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the preeminent superpower in the ancient world, and they controlled you know, pretty much everything. Uh, either they controlled it or people they controlled controlled it. Uh, and so the book of Revelation uh, is written in a time when uh, the church was basically a little cult that was spreading out in the Roman Empire and which held views like the Jews. The Jews were in a similar situation in terms of their religious beliefs. Um, like the Jews, uh, the early church, which many of them were Jews, uh, you know, held to one God uh, and denied the other gods that uh, the rest of the ancient world uh, ha held as, a, as an important part of their civic life. In the ancient world, there wasn't, there wasn't a clear separation between religion and politics. To, uh, to honor the state was to worship the emperor. Uh, to honor your city was to pay homage to the gods of the city. So for Christians and for Jews, uh, this is something that made the Jews always so problematic for the Romans and eventually resulted in the destruction of, of, of uh, temple. the temple and just the, you know, the Jewish state in general, uh, was that they refused to conform uh, to this, what, what the rest of the ancient world viewed as a very, a very open and progressive and cosmopolitan uh, form of religion, which said, oh yes, sure, keep your own gods, you can keep them, keep worshiping your own gods, you just need to worship our gods too, and overall, overall the emperor, you must worship the emperor and his gods. Um, and because the Jews and Christians refused to do that, they faced persecution and they faced difficulty. Um, there's, you know, there, there, again, there are many lines in the book of Revelation that today so many Christians look at as being, oh, they're mysterious, and how is this going to take place in the future? But they were simply descriptions of what was happening in the, in the life of the early church. One example is uh, it talks about how, um, you know, everyone has to take the mark of the beast uh, if they are to buy and sell. Uh, and, you know, for, for many Christians today, it's like, well, what, what is the mark of the beast? What will that mean? How will we know if someone's taken the mark? Um, but it was pretty clear uh, one, some of the ways you could take the mark of the beast in the ancient world, and primarily among them was uh, worshiping the emperor or false pagan gods. And uh, this was actually required uh, if you wanted to buy and sell in the ancient Roman markets. You would, you would be required sort of on entering. It's like, imagine you go into the supermarket and as you're coming in, they ask you just to take a little pinch of incense and, 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 and give it to the emperor. And that was a form of sacrifice. You take a little pinch of incense and you burn it on an altar as a, as, as a recognition of the emperor. Um, and that was a form of worship. This was required to buy and sell. This was required to participate in the economy. Hmm. Okay. That's, so, that's interesting. And that, so uh, as we were talking before recording, we talked about um, at the idea of uh, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not as being, you know, it's, it's, it shows up in the Bible that Jesus is Lord, but that the, what's not written there and is the flip side of that right. for Christians was that Caesar is not. It's a funny thing because I think a lot of times, uh, skeptics of Christianity and of religion in general will point to where the Bible is not original. Uh, oh, it's like, oh yes, these stories are old. You know, your 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 God is so similar to the old God that came before, and it's just sort of a remix on the story. And the thing is, that's true. And the Book of Revelation is not particularly unique. It's 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 uh, it's it's similar uh, to a lot of things that have come before, and that's precisely why it's powerful. 
because it speaks it speaks into uh, into real situations and uh, and and speaks speaks counter to false claims that are being made by similar gods, you might say. And uh, we we say that Jesus is Lord and Savior not because that's something that Christianity invented. Caesar invented Savior and Lord, and because Caesar claimed to be the Lord and Savior of the world, the early church uh, knew, knew that their claim needed to be that Jesus was the Lord and Savior of the world, not Caesar. And that was a radical and uh, punishable claim. Hmm. That makes me wonder about um, this. This is part of the Book of Revelation thing, but it's a little detailed thing. It makes me wonder about the church at Laodicea being neither hot nor cold. Were they Were they being like, well, maybe, maybe you're both Lord and Savior? Yeah, so what Mackenzie's referring to, so the Book of Revelation, like, again, we won't try to give a synopsis of the Book of Revelation. There's so much in there. There's so much in there, and really recommend that you read it for yourself, preferably uh, preferably uh, alongside a, commenta- a good commentary. Um, but... At the beginning of the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation pretty much starts out with a series of letters to seven different churches in what's now Turkey. Uh, and one of the churches, so, so Jesus, Jesus is the one writing the letters through the Spirit. And uh, Jesus has things to say to each of these churches. And some of the churches, you know, sort of like a performance review for each of the churches. Uh, <laughs> Everybody hates performance reviews. Right, right. So Jesus is like, so I want you to go ahead and rate yourself from one to five, how you think you're performing your duties. No. Um, <laughs> but Jesus has some things to say to each of these churches. And the church at Laodicea uh, got a pretty bad performance review. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus says, uh, you know, I wish you were either hot or cold. And because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, I hope my boss never says that to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yeah, it... it, it there are lots of things in those letters where you're like, I wonder what was going on there. What made them neither hot nor cold? Or, or you know, there's another letter where uh, Jesus says, like, you know, you hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'm like, who were the Nicolaitans? What was that all about? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, uh, one of the key things in the book of Revelation at the beginning and, and throughout the beginning uh, sort of paves the way for the rest of it uh, with Jesus' message to the seven churches uh, the Holy Spirit is both encouraging the early church and giving a warning to the early church that the road ahead is going to be hard, and only those who can exercise patient endurance in the face of suffering are going to make it. So, Revelation, I actually think Revelation is, I mean, Revelation is always relevant um, if it's read in the, right, in the right spirit and the right understanding, but I think the book of Revelation is very, very relevant to us today as we um, I think almost everyone recognizes that we have entered into a time of great danger and a time where uh, unique forms of suffering are emerging uh, and where we face those forms of suffering. Uh, so the, one of the messages of Revelation is, will you stay true to God? Will you stay true to Jesus? Will you stay true to love and trust in the power of God to be loved to others? Or will you go along with the powers? Will you go along with empire? Will you go along with uh, the worldview that they present and the violence that they exercise? And then pivoting from that, um, (laughs) 
because Micah has just presented us with some queries, so maybe you want to pause and think about those. But um, we talked about queries before. Um, a thing people are often wondering about, uh, I think, when they ask about what someone thinks of Book of Revelation is um, about the idea of the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly a thing that, uh, especially when you hear from evangelicals, they talk a lot about, um, again, in that left behind sort of terms. Right. Um, the Jesus, and, Jesus is going to appear in the sky. He's going to float down from heaven. And uh, then, again, this is me sort of expressing uh, what I think sort of a, a, a major evangelical view would be that you would find in, in things like the Left Behind series. Jesus is going to descend from heaven, from the sky. We're going to see him in the sky. And everyone who already believes is going to be lifted up into the sky and go with him into the sky to be in heaven. Yeah, there's a there's a scene in Vicar of Dibley, I think, um, which is a British TV show where she's telling one of her friends, uh, you know, about the second coming and, um, you know, you don't know when it's going to happen. And her friend says, well, but what if I'm on the loo? She's <laughs> like, he can still show up. Well, that's a bit rude, isn't it? <laughs> um, so uh, about this idea of the second coming, um, early friends actually talked about this. Um, or wrote about it. I guess we don't really know what they were saying out loud. Um, but, or not much. Um, but they would, a phrase that was, that you'd find a lot in early friends' writings is that the day of the Lord is come and coming. Um, day of the Lord being judgment day. Right. Um, meaning that, and the idea that it's come and coming. So they're seeing both a current unfolding of what's in Revelation and a, continuing on into the future unfolding. Um, And they would speak of um, the second coming of Christ as being internally or an inward second coming. So coming back in your heart. So they're, they're not actually looking forward to seeing a physical Jesus flying in the sky. Um, As far as they are concerned, they have experienced the second coming already by experiencing the presence of Christ within them. Um, one uh, one famous quote, and I actually don't know who it's who it's from. It's from an early friend. It might be from Fox. It probably is from Fox. Um, but I remember because it's a, it's it's in a song that was put together by I think Paulette Meyer, um, uh, and she sang it in plain song. And I'm going to sing it now just because I think it's relevant. I can remember better if I'm singing it. And when they say, "Look here, or look there is Christ," go not forth, for Christ is within you. And those who try to draw your minds away from the teaching inside you are opposed to Christ. For the light is within, and the light of God is within, and the Spirit within you, though hidden. Yes, it's George Fox. Yeah. Um, so the the early Quaker emphasis was absolutely that uh Jesus, Jesus's second coming was not uh, was not something to be seen outwardly, but was actually that it's sort of it's almost it's almost like you realize that Jesus is already in the room with you, and you just hadn't noticed him, mm-hmm. and that Jesus Jesus is showing up in ways that you didn't expect. And this was relevant because uh, so much of the so much of the the uh, religious and political thinking around the second coming um, was uh, was focused about. An event in the future was going to happen, and then things would happen. 
And what really energized and mobilized the Quakers was this experience of, yes, something big is going to happen, but look, it's already happening too. And I think, and I think there is a tendency, and one that I have embraced at certain points, uh, to say, oh, it's, it's not even about something big happening in the future. It's all, ha- it's all happening now. And I no longer really ascribe to that too much. I think it's important to hold the tension between what I think a lot, a lot of different people in the church, not just Quakers, call the, the now and the not yet, in the sense of like, Jesus is coming back right now and he's available now. And there is this mysterious day of the Lord in the future that we look to where there will be consummation and God's work will be complete. Um, and I don't know what to make of that. I believe in it. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, but there, but throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, there's a sense of God is at work palpably, practically, powerfully right now, and things are changing, and the kingdom of God has come near. And yet there's a final consummation that we haven't gotten to yet, and we don't know when that's going to come, but we wait for it with patience and endurance. That's what the book of Revelation calls us to, is to, um, to wait for that day with patience and endurance, uh, and to be active participants in the in, in the work of Christ in the world, and that's that's something we're going to be talking about in our next episode uh, on the Lamb's War is what it looks like in particular for us to be people who actively cooperate and participate in uh, the work of Christ in the world as the kingdom is unfolding and coming to fruition. And I, I think I would say that this like so many things, is something where Quakers have shifted views over time. Because when Quakerism started, as we've talked about before, they everything was just going so ridiculous in England. Like there was so much social and political upheaval that it felt like the end of the world to them. And so when they're saying, oh, yep, here we go, we're in the end times. See, we, we, we've got Jesus coming back. For the second time, turns out that's internal and and trying to say that they were in the end times then. And then, you know, the world didn't end. It kept going. And then you know, we were like, well, it's been 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, mm-hmm. 100. Okay. Well, uh, we, uh, we, we, uh, we missed that one a little bit. Um, really and so like things had to adjust. It's really a lot like the experience of the early church. Mm-hmm. The early church had the same experience. When you read, when you read scripture, I mean, they... They really thought that like God was going to wrap history up in the next couple decades. Mm-hmm. They really thought so. Um, and by the time you get to the oldest writings that were that, that are preserved in the canon, um, it's clear that people people are sort of like, well, we don't really know when the final consummation is going to happen. So here's some here's some tips on how to live a Christian life in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since since it turns out we're not all dead yet. Uh... Well, well, no, the real scandal and the real thing that made the early church start questioning the immediacy of the final consummation uh, of the kingdom uh, was the fact that people were dying. That that you know they expected to see it in their lifetimes, and but but the elder mm-hmm. the elders were dying, and the people who you know the the, the eyewitnesses to Jesus were dying. And how do gotcha. we make sense of this? Because surely you know before this generation passes away, yeah, etc. Exactly. So I, I just meant that that there wasn't like a mass die off of everybody. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. Tune in next time for the Lambs War.
You can find us on the web at quakerpodcast.org, as Quaker Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Patreon, and on iTunes. Thank you.